Turn with me to our reading today. We're going to be in the book of Jonah again. Um, We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through the 10th verse of chapter 2. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want you to imagine a scenario, okay? I want you to imagine you're getting to know somebody for the first time, and it's kind of like speed dating. It's not romantic, but you have to give them in just one sentence the essence of who you are. Maybe it's a run-on sentence. That's okay. But you can only share one thing with that person about yourself that describes who you are. And we're going to practice this, okay? This is participatory. So I want you to turn to somebody you didn't come to church with. I want you to answer that question. If you're joining us from home, answer the question in the comments. Ready, set, go. Don't think about it. Just answer. I just want to say for the record... um, the 8 o'clock service, they, they were much warmer in the greeting time, but you guys were much more willing to answer that question with each other. And so I'm, I'm really curious to know, what, what did you answer? I'll tell you my answer to that question. I would probably tell you about the time that I cheated on a test when I was in high school and I got busted for it. Or, or, or I maybe would tell you about the job that I applied for in college and they told me that I was not qualified and I didn't get it and it's because I wasn't qualified. Or did I tell you the last time I got a speeding ticket? Did I tell you that story? 
Are those the kinds of things you told to the people around you? Is that the essence of who you are? No, no, no. True stories, if you want to know. I'll give you more background later. But those are not the things that you would say if you were trying to communicate the essence of who you are with somebody that doesn't know you. What do we gravitate toward? We gravitate toward the highlights, don't we? And that's the question I want to ask today, is when you are defining your essence and the way in which God has made you and is making you into the person that he has created you to be, what examples would you gravitate towards sharing, the highs or the lows? And my guess is that for almost all of us, it's the highs. All I have to do is look at social media, right? You look at Facebook or Instagram, nobody posts pictures of their kids having tantrums on the floor, do they? That doesn't happen. We don't usually do that. We don't take a selfie before we roll out of bed in the morning. Can you imagine what my hair looks like before I've taken a shower? I mean, you don't want to know. You don't want to see that. For those of you who are older, um, you remember before social media, we used to have these archaic tools, these things, these books called photo albums, right? Remember that? I love walking through those, and yet the same is true for them. It's always the positive moments. It's the weddings. It's the graduations. It's the birthday parties. It's the sporting events. I've met a lot of people. I've never met someone who hired a professional photographer to take divorce pictures. I, I, I just have yet, I have yet to meet that person. Uh, nobody has ever, that I know, has ever brought a camera to their oncologist appointment while they're battling cancer. Nobody takes a selfie with their psychologist, do they? I haven't taken one with my counselor. You probably haven't either. Has, has anyone ever taken a picture of their office on the day that they got laid off? Probably not. And yet, Isn't a significant part of our lives lived in those moments? Don't those moments have such a great impact in defining who we are? I mean, Jesus himself said there is great significance in those moments. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nobody wants to be poor in spirit, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, say it with me, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so the question is, what if the moments that we don't share, the moments of failure, the moments of pain, the moments of suffering, the moments that without God bring us heaviness and even guilt and shame, what if with God those same moments might be the moments that we would want to share with others. What if we wouldn't just share them with others, but what if they become moments that we would be, dare I say, proud of? What if in the kingdom of God that Jesus 2,000 years ago came to institute, to bring, and to promise us for all of eternity, what if in the kingdom of God it's the hard moments that actually make us more into the people God is making us to be than our own accomplishments. I believe it is. And as we look back on our life, I believe it's going to be that we're going to see our own limitations as they become clearer are the moments where God's strength became stronger. I believe for you and for me that our greatest sources of untapped potential are probably not in the next right thing that you do. 
even though we spend most of our time thinking about the next right thing, but I think our untapped potential is so often found in the things in our life that have gone wrong, the things that have life that have gone bad, our pain, our suffering, our failures have so much more to teach us than any degree or job opportunity or even our own physical health can bring. And the reason why is it's because in those opportunities, we learn about God. We look at those instances in our lives. Maybe you're going through one right now or you look back at them and you have to ask with hope to God, God, where is the blessing inside of this? You promised to be with me in these moments. Where are you and what are you doing? And I begin there because that is exactly where Jonah finds himself in our reading this morning as he is at the bottom of the sea in the belly. I'm not even going to call it a fish. I'm going to call it a sea monster. And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. Last week, we started this study on the book of Jonah. We're calling it Runaway because we all run away. And this book reads us more than we read it. Now, I don't think I said this last week, but this is known as an early example of literary satire. And when you think of satire, you probably think more uh, about TV shows, right? Or, or movies or, or spoof news articles that get sent across social media. Satire uses exaggeration to make a point. And oftentimes we laugh at it because we can see that underneath the surface, it's poking at something that's true something that we can personally relate to. That's the best satire. And if you've taken the story of Jonah seriously up until this point, I hope you can allow yourself to laugh it just as uh, just how absurd the, the author tells us what takes place. You've got Jonah as a prophet who has been told by God, go to Nineveh, right? And, and, and if you heard the voice of God tell you to go somewhere, don't you think you'd probably go, right? And so instead of going, he goes the opposite direction. I always like to share in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is in our pews, take one home if you don't have one for your kids or your grandkids. I love the story of Jonah because it says that he gets on that boat and he says, give me one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And I thought, you know, what's my not Nineveh? Like, what place do I want a ticket to get away from? We all want a ticket to get away from somewhere. And so that's what he does. And he gets on this ship and he goes to this place that is 3,000 miles away from where God has called him. And, and he gets on this ship and, and he tells them that he's running away from God, which my guess is they thought he was nuts. And so they, they put him in the bottom of the ship and that's where he falls asleep. And God sends this massive storm to rouse his attention. And the sailors on the ship are wondering who has brought this storm upon us. And so they ask him some speed dating essence of who you are questions in verse eight of chapter one. They asked him, tell us, Who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? It sounds a lot like the question I asked at the beginning, doesn't it? And so what is Jonah's answer? He doesn't have much time, right? They're going to go overboard. The whole ship is going to sink. He says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And if you look closely, you'll see, and I gave you the answer last Sunday, that that he answers all of their questions except one. 
He tells them where he's from. He tells them what kind of um, people he is, but he does not tell them what kind of work he does. He doesn't tell them his job. He doesn't say that my vocation is a prophet of the Lord, that I am set apart to listen to his voice and to do and to say what he says. He doesn't tell them that. I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder if it's because it's the one area in his life that he is utterly failing at right now. It's his weak spots. It's a sore subject. It's so sore, he would rather die than talk about it. He has given up all hope. It's the lowest moment of his life. And so eventually these sailors throw him overboard at his request, and it's all over, or so he and everybody else thinks. And it's out of that moment that this ginormous, crazy sea creature comes up and swallows him whole. And I call it a sea creature because if you look, I shared this a little bit last week, at the original language, either in the Hebrew or if you look in the New Testament in the way that it describes the story of Jonah um, in Matthew, for example, you'll see that the original language words that are used for big fish are not the typical words you would use for fish. It's not the word you would use for a whale. My wife, Alyssa, was very upset about that when I told her. She said, my whole upbringing in Sunday school, I thought it was like a cute orca whale, right? Like, you watch Free Willy, and you think, oh, that's, that's the story that I learned, right? And, and she, she was actually mad at me. She said, stop ruining these Bible stories for me. And I was just so fascinated because I studied this this week. And in Matthew 12, 40, for example, in the gospel, it harks, the, harks us back to the story of Jonah. It refers to a huge fish, and it uses the Greek word katos. Say that with me, katos. Now, the word katos in Greek is the same Greek word that's used in Greek mythology to describe a sea monster that almost ate princess Andromeda. Take a look at a picture of that story. Does that look like Free Willy to you? <laughs> it's got like a it's got like a, a a head of like I don't know a horse or or a wolf. It's got these big tusks. It's got these yellow, disgusting teeth. Right? That's that's the same word in Greek that's used to describe this story in the Gospel of Matthew. And then if you look back at at countless pictures and paintings of the story of Jonah throughout history. Uh, this one's from 1691, Peter Lastman. Um, he taught Rembrandt. Uh, this is a picture that he painted. Take a look at that. Does that look like, I was talking to Marty Page at the last service. She got to swim with the dolphin. She showed me a cute little picture. Does that look like a dolphin that you would go to SeaWorld to swim with? I don't think so. And yet that is what the language calls our attention to. And the reason why it's important to know that that's the story that we're actually reading is because that's how it feels when you're face-to-face -face with your lowest low, isn't it? That's how it feels. We're terrified. We, I've shared this before just recently. The untamed sea for the ancient world was the most terrifying thing that somebody could think of, not just because of the sea, but because what was within the sea that could take your life. And so Jonah comes face to face, more than face to face. He is swallowed by the most terrifying thing he can think of, and it swallows him whole and holds him in that place, not just for a moment, 
moment, but for three days and for three nights. And that gives Jonah some time to think, and it gives him some time to pray. And later on, he writes down the prayer that he prayed. Verse 1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. I mean, you could just feel in that language the weight of guilt, can't you? And shame, brokenness and pain on Jonah's situation, his mistake. What caused him to be hurled into the sea? I mean, I think those last verses are the worst The engulfing waters threatened me. The the deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He, He began running from God and it got worse and worse and worse. It started with a ticket and it was led to a storm and then He literally was drowning in his mistakes. And I think about that progression, and I think that's a pretty good analogy for all of human suffering, isn't it? Injustice and brokenness that we run away from. The worse it is, the more we try to run. It's natural. And yet the more we run, the more it seems to close in on us. It's like drowning. Have you ever been at the bottom of a pool? The weight of the water, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier until it begins to crush us. And it's in that moment of desperation and pain that God intervenes for Jonah. It is literally when Jonah has nowhere else to turn, nowhere to go. He has run as far as he can. He is at the end of his rope, and God intervenes. Verse 6, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up out of the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I hope my wife is happy to know that that part from Sunday school did happen, (laughs) right? That's the one we always remember, that the the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah. You know what the word vomit means in Hebrew? Vomit. (laughs) The fish word, that one we we can wrestle with. That's what happened. It's graphically detailing for us what happened. And it causes us, every time I read this, I have to ask the question, why does God wait for that moment to intervene, right? Like, why does he wait for the final moment? If he sent a ginormous sea monster, could God not have also sent a hawk that would have just plucked Jonah up off of the dock as he was getting onto the ship? Like, couldn't he have done that? 
And if he could have done that, couldn't he have sent a tidal wave to pick Jonah up and carry him to shore instead of having him be thrown over the edge of that ship? But God doesn't do that, does he? And when God doesn't do that for us, we get angry. I get angry. We ask God the very logical question, why are you allowing me to go through this? Whether you're going through a storm that you brought upon yourself or whether it's a storm that has been brought upon you, it's easy to ask God why, isn't it? And I think it's natural to ask God why. And what we learn from Jonah is that when we ask that question, God always answers that question. And the answer that he gives us is because I'm not finished yet. When you think you're finished, he's just getting started. While our pain and mistakes may in every way to us feel like the end. It feels like you're face to face with the most terrifying monster that you've ever seen. At the very same time, God is just beginning. Uh, I've shared this many times, that, that verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Eugene Peterson uh, is the one that translated the message, and he's a biblical scholar. He writes the Bible in today's language, and he took that verse and said that if Jesus said it to us today, he might say it this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. How many of you have been at the end of your rope? Show of hands. Maybe you are right now. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, because with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And what do we know about God? He's good. He is loving. He is grace-filled. He gives us mercy and forgiveness and peace and strength. And this just fits into the rhythm that we see is consistent in all of the created world, right? Doesn't death bring forth life? Don't the seasons of fall and winter always find themselves followed with spring and summer? And you can't hold it back if you try. Just this week, God gave us a beautiful illustration of that. We've all been complaining. I know you did here too, and the last service did as well. We came into church today like, oh, wasn't it nice a week and a half ago, and it was like 70-some degrees and sunny? And then on Monday, it snowed, wasn't it Monday? And I was driving my kids to school, and we were looking out the window, and there's snow on the ground. And you know what my kids noticed as we looked out? They said, look at the green grass just coming through the snow. It was as if God was using creation to say, snow, you cannot hold back what's coming. Because the truth is, God wants to do that in every winter that we face. And last time I I preached on Jonah a couple years ago now, I shared an article I want to share it with you again. It it, it was written by a pastor. He's a Baptist pastor. His name is Daniel Ritchie. And and it really illustrates this in, in, in a beautiful way. It starts like this. He says, I was born without arms. This is the best way to summarize my story. I I stepped into suffering at birth. My physical body is a billboard for my pain. This has brought mocking, cruel jokes, stares, the constant feeling that I am not like anyone else that I meet. I've never been able to hide. Many people can bury their pain, but my heartache is written all over my two empty sleeves Those sleeves tell a story without my mouth ever saying a word. My pain almost swallowed me. But Christ showed me how much greater he was than my empty sleeves. I used to think that being born without arms was the most horrible thing that could happen to a person. 
In Christ, he has helped me to say that the worst and most painful thing that has ever happened to me is also the best thing that has ever happened to me. I really like that last line. He says, it's the worst and most painful thing. He does not mince words. It is the worst and most painful thing that has ever happened to me. But in Christ, it's also the best thing that's ever happened to me. What does that look like? He goes on to share a quote I've shared with you many times by C.S. Lewis. Pain insists upon being attended to, doesn't it? God whispers into us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Isn't it true? We are drawn to the presence of God in our pain. What's also true is that when God speaks to us in those moments, he speaks in a way that is so clear and so loud that it gives us a message that we can share with the world. And Pastor Daniel says as much when he says, one of the most interesting realities of suffering is that our personal pain also speaks to those around us. Our pain becomes God's megaphone to a watching world. The world gravitates to the cancer patient who has hope and peace. Bystanders are astonished over the parents who cling to the good father as they bury their own child. My friends are taken back when I can shrug off hateful words of my disability and turn my focus to what God says about me. Our pain gives us a platform. I've said it many times before, and, and I'm sure you would agree, the fastest way that somebody can make me feel inadequate or question myself or even question God is when they come before me and tell me how they have it all together. How awesome they are, how smart they are, how faithful they are. And I was faced with this just not very long ago. It was a couple months ago. A friend of my wife, Alyssa, and I, we just connect mostly on Facebook now and And she reached out, she wanted to talk. We've got kids who are the same age and we got together and we met and we sat and we talked and she was talking to me and and I could tell there was a little bit of a distance between the two of us and and she kept referring to just how good of parents Alyssa and I are. And, and, and after a while I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, all the pictures that I see on Facebook, that's all she knows. All the pictures that I see, all the things that you're doing, all this, you guys are just so wonderful. It was almost as if she had this image of us being perfect. And I said, oh, let me tell you some stories of how that is not true. I mean, I know she knew that wasn't true, but then I told her just how untrue that was, just how much the challenges she's facing as a parent are the same challenges that we're facing as a parent right now. I told her about our pain, and it was at that moment when we really could listen to one another. It was in that moment when we could connect. And I thought, you know, isn't that the same for myself, right? When somebody tells me their pain, when they tell me their story of encountering a sea monster at the bottom of their ocean, then I listen because I know for a fact that there are so many moments in my life where I am less than perfect, where I am so much less than awesome, where I am not smart, where I am not faithful, where I have utterly failed. And so when I see perfection, I can't relate to that. But when I see weakness and suffering... That I know. We all know it. That's why the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. God said that to Paul. 
My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And because Jesus says that to us, Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. If Paul was sitting in the pews this morning and was asked, share the essence of who you are, he would have told you about all the things he's done wrong. He said, I boast in my weaknesses gladly so that Christ's power may rest in me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Is it because those things are fun? No. But it's because when I am weak, he says, I am strong. Friends, the the story of Jonah shows us that Jonah is going to use, as we get into this next week, a new platform off of which to be a prophet. It's not going to be one off of which he comes with his holy prophet name tag or wearing a clerical collar. He is going to go to Nineveh, this time as a fellow sinner who just like them has been running away from God. Isn't it fascinating that the same thing that the Ninevites are guilty of is the very thing that Jonah has just done himself. He's going to go to Nineveh and he is going to proclaim God's grace as one who received it himself. And as we learn next week, we're going to hear them listen to Jonah. They're going to stop running and they're going to turn to God. And I am convinced that it has nothing to do with what he said or who he was. And it has everything to do with the fact that in a broken prophet who ran from God, the Ninevites could see themselves. And I believe the same is true for you and me. I believe God wants to use our brokenness and our weakness, not just to draw us to him, but to draw others closer to him as well. And so at the end of this service, I want to invite you to to consider something. Uh, Sarah Troxell, who is up on our worship team and prayed us into this portion of our service, her and her husband Aaron and Millie Lungeon, they're prayer ministers. They're going to come up after the service is over. They're just going to stand here, and and they're going to be here to pray. Because the reality of the story of Jonah is that Jonah didn't first share all of his weakness with the world. He shared it in prayer with God. And so whether you need to come before uh, God and pray for a weakness in your life or maybe someone else is suffering and in need of prayer, I want to encourage you to come forward after the service and pray. Come before the God who can do all the things that we can. And let's do that now together as a body as we bow our heads and we pray. Lord Jesus, and In Matthew 12, we read, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When we look to you, Jesus, we see a suffering Savior, one who didn't suffer because of anything he did wrong, but one who threw himself overboard, not even into the sea, but into death itself. Jonah is but a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what you, Jesus, would do for us. You would take upon all human weakness upon your shoulders. You would allow it to crush you and three days later overcome it. And so, God, as we come before you, we come before you with that hope and that truth 
That as we read in so many different places, if you can overcome that, can you not overcome all things, including the thing that is crushing us right now? When we are crying out to you, God, why, where are you? Help us to hear your voice with hope, saying, I am not finished yet. I am with you. Reminds me of the many ways in which Jesus prepared the disciples for his death and his resurrection. He said, in this world there will be trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And the way that he prepared them and prepares us and and is with us is by literally being with us in those moments. Unlike Jonah, we are never hurled into the depths of the sea unaware of the presence of God. He is always with you. 